We begin today with the very important overlap between the writings of St. Paul and, well, Dr. Seuss, of course. We ponder whether eggs are the only food that should be considered suitable for not eating. We visit the first century church in Rome, and we have a brief discussion of appropriate table manners, depending on where you're living, of course, all on the way to answering the question, should you like green eggs and ham? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. So I'm reading some scripture the other day, the book of Romans, 14th chapter, to be specific, and I come across the following passage. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them both. Like many kids of my generation, I grew up with the books of Dr. Seuss. Now, there are some powerful lessons in these books. There's a book called The Lorax, and it's a wonderful story of why we must care for the environment and the world in which we live. Another book entitled Oh, the Places You'll Go was the last of the books published by Dr. Seuss, and it has become a graduation gift staple because it's filled with the message of hope and potential. Matter of fact, when I think I graduated from seminary, no, that's not correct. When I was ordained into the ministry, my sister gave me that book at my ordination party. How the Grinch Stole Christmas is another wonderful tale that many of us grew up with. Now, some complain that it lacks reference to what Christmas is actually all about, but I'll just say I grew up with it, and I never took it to be an alternative to Christmas, just a wonderful kind of feel-good story. But I will admit there were other stories that bothered me as I heard them. For example, as a little kid, I was always disturbed by the cat in the hat. Yes, he cleans up his mess at the end of the story, but he seemed like a bully to me. It was an interesting story, but starring a character who was a little bit frightening and I didn't really want to have anything to do with as a kid. He wasn't someone, the cat in the hat wasn't someone that I thought, oh, it would be fun if he came and visited me at my house. And perhaps the book that I had the most powerful love-hate relationship with was Green Eggs and Ham. Now, let me begin by telling you something about myself when I was a little kid. I was a picky eater. There were lots of foods I didn't like as a kid, and there still are a couple that I don't care for as an adult, actually. But as a kid, the list was pretty long. Green peppers, fresh tomatoes, any sauce that was chunky, raw onions, mayonnaise were kind of all at the top of my list. So you could imagine a really chunky tomato sauce with green peppers, tomatoes, and onions really topped my list as something I enjoyed. Not at all. So here's a book called Green Eggs and Ham, a dish that, well, to me as a kid sounded reasonable because I like eggs and I like ham and it didn't look unpleasant to me. But the entire premise of the book was someone, there was someone who didn't want to eat these things. And he was being hounded by a character named Sam I Am who wants him to eat green eggs and ham. And he keeps saying no, no, and more no, but Sam I Am will not leave him alone. He keeps pestering him and asking, well, maybe you'd eat it in a different situation. He's asked by Sam I Am to eat them in all sorts of strange possibilities. 
And he responds to Sam I Am in frustration. I could not, would not, on a boat. I will not, will not, with a goat. I will not eat them in the rain. Not in the dark, not in a tree, not in a car. You let me be. I spent much of my childhood with people trying to take things I didn't like to eat and slip them into my food to prove to me that I actually did like them. I just didn't know it. When I listened to this story, I saw as a kid a part of my life that I really didn't enjoy. There's such a thing as people who are called super tasters. Their sense of taste is just far more sensitive and acute than the rest of the population. And I don't know if I fall into this category. I do know that I fall into a category of super smeller. Okay, I don't even know if there is such a designation, but I do know that my sense of smell is way more sensitive than the normal population. And most of these foods were easily detectable by me via smell long before they ever got into my mouth. So a book about trying to get someone to try something they don't like, well, it never really played well for me as a kid. Fast forward to my first job after graduating from college. And as I've mentioned before in in these podcasts, I worked at a state mental health facility in Knoxville, Tennessee, and it was called Lakeshore. Lakeshore was an enormous place with large buildings, and each building was dedicated to a specific population. So there was a huge building for acute patients, patients who had just come in. There was another large building for chronic patients, patients who were going to be there for years and years, maybe the rest of their life. And there was also another large building with geriatric patients. And these buildings were spread out all over a rolling campus that was several hundred acres in size. I worked with the Children and Youth Program, which was set up not in large buildings as the rest of it was, but in cottages. And each cottage housed a treatment group of a different makeup. Mine was the teenage girls group. The cottages had multiple bedrooms with two beds in a room. It had a commons room, some offices, and even a kitchen. And though many of the kids in the teenage group came to us through court order, the kids weren't locked in. The doors were unlocked. They were, for the most part, free to move around the cottage, and they weren't supposed to leave the cottage without permission, but they could defy that rule if they chose to do so. In our children and youth program, there was really only one locked cottage. It was where kids who were new to the program came in. Often a new kid needed a couple of days to a couple of weeks getting used to living in this more structured environment. So this is the place where they lived, where they were initially assessed, and where they acclimated. This building, the only locked ward in our program, was given the strange name of Freedom House, an irony that was not lost on those of us who worked there, and I doubt was lost on the kids who stayed there either. But I will say the name predated me in terms of its origin, so I really can't explain where it came from. I occasionally would do a shift at Freedom House, even though that wasn't my regular place of working, but I'd occasionally do a shift mostly around the holidays when other people had gone on vacation and they needed someone to fill in. I remember working at Freedom House one late night shift with a woman who'd been working there for years. Now, this was the shift which we would come in around 11 o'clock at night and we'd work till about 8 o'clock the next morning. She was older 
and tough. And although this woman was a colleague, she intimidated the fool out of me. I think she intimidated everyone. One of the first shifts I ever worked with her, we were waking up the kids and telling them to get ready and come into the common room for breakfast. The breakfast had been delivered in styrofoam containers, and my co-worker stood to talk to the kids. Now, most of the time, the kids had a little more autonomy, but because this was during a holiday and I was filling in during this time, the food just came in these styrofoam containers and was pre-portioned for them. They didn't get any choice as to what went in. And she said to them, she expected every single person in this group to eat all of the food they were served. That surprised me. Someone in the group asked, I'm not much of a breakfast eater. Do I really have to eat everything if I don't want it? To which the woman said, yes, absolutely everything. You have to clean your plates. No exceptions. And then as if the words, no exceptions, had reminded her of something, she paused for a moment and said, actually, there is one exception. And I thought, oh, good. She's going to allow each person to pick one thing that they don't eat. And that seems more fair. Instead, she said, I don't like eggs, so no one has to eat eggs. I don't like them. I don't want to eat them, so you're free not to eat them. But that's the only food I don't like, so you have to eat everything else. It was a weird experience. She was technically the supervisor for the shift, and I was a substitute. Or a better analogy would be she was the teacher, and I was playing the role of teacher's aide. So I had no authority to overrule her, but I will say I would slip around when she wasn't in the room and go in someplace else, and I would let kids scrape things off their plate that they didn't want to eat. It would have made more sense to me that we said to the kids, you have to eat something for breakfast, but I'm going to give you some autonomy within reason to choose your own food. But instead, she said, my personal likes and dislikes are the only ones that anyone here is allowed to have in regards to their food. So, okay, Dan, why this hyper-obsession about food? Because I think there is a bias in our culture and in our lives that my preferences are healthy, normal, and any deviation from what I consider to be healthy and normal, well, is obviously unhealthy and abnormal. What we like everyone should like. And what we choose not to do, no one should do. Paul, in our opening quote, was dealing with this when he wrote to the church in Rome, and it even had relationship to food, as you heard, as well as other practices, the truth is. There were members of that Christian community in Rome who continued to keep the kosher food traditions of their Jewish roots. Others chose not to follow those old traditions and there was a lot of bickering over who was right. So Paul tells them, and I'm going to go back to the passage. You've heard this part. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them both. Then we move on. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord, and whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul says, quit trying to figure out who's right, and instead acknowledge 
It's just differing ways of being faithful to God. When I was in high school, between my junior and senior year, I went to Europe for the summer, and I stayed with a German family for the time that I was there. And after a couple of weeks, my host mother suggested that I might want to change my table manners to adapt to the local custom. In the United States, we cut a piece of food with our knife and fork, knife in the right hand, fork in the left. We put our knife down, and then we switch the fork to our right hand, flipping the fork over so that the tines are now pointing up, and then we take a bite. In Europe, they're a little more economical in their motions. In essence, the fork never leaves the left hand. If they cut a piece of steak, the fork stays in the left hand after they've cut it, and the piece of meat is brought up to the mouth with the tine still facing down. Also, in the United States, if your hand is not in use, it goes in your lap. In Europe, if a hand is not in use, it stays above the table. The point being that neither one of these systems is right and neither is wrong. Both are just local customs that work for the people who live there. And religious traditions are much the same. Even within Christianity alone, there's a wide spectrum of the way our faith is lived out. Some of us, have services with no music. Some love traditional organ music as a part of our church services, while others still prefer the contemporary feel of guitars, drums, and keyboards. Some prefer to wear suits to church. Others like to worship in more casual clothes. Some churches prefer decorative vestments for those who lead worship, while others prefer no adornment at all. Even within my own denomination, there are differences. There are those who love to use incense as a part of worship, and others for whom it's offensive and distracting. It's interesting that even within a single congregation, there can be disagreement on these issues. And then, of course, how much more are those differences clearly seen between churches of differing denominations? I remember one time I was doing a pulpit exchange with a fellow minister in town, and he was of one denomination, and I was of another. I was to lead his services on Sunday, and he would lead mine. We each visited the other at their church the week prior to get some coaching as to kind of the rituals and customs we could expect in this church that we'd never done a service in before. As I was showing him about communion in our church, I said, when we're preparing the wine, we add just a little bit of water, just a splash. Do you all do that? Because I was curious whether or not they followed that same tradition. And he answered with more than a little judgment in his voice, no, we don't water down anything in our tradition. I responded by saying, well, we don't either. This water is being added to the wine as a reminder that Jesus, when pierced by the spear as he hung on the cross, bled both blood and water. So we mix a little water as a reminder of that part of the story. There was an awkward silence for a moment because he clearly understood that he had judged us without trying to understand our customs. Look, as much as I've talked about food, this is really about allowing people of other traditions within your own faith, and even people of other faiths who have their own traditions, allowing them to be without being judged by you. After all, they are all brothers and sisters created by the same God. In the same passage we started with, Paul says this to the people in Rome to whom he's writing, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? 
Now, Paul's clearly talking specifically about squabbles within the Christian faith. But the lesson clearly extrapolates well beyond those limits. What do we do with people who differ from us and our experiences of what's right and normal? And Paul, once again as a part of this passage, gives us an answer to that. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now, we aren't talking tolerance. I really don't like that word. Because for me, it has powerful negative connotations. It kind of means, I think you're wrong, but I will let you be. Paul pushes us much harder than that. He says, Therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. In other words, let us live in peace and let us always strive to understand, not tolerate, to truly understand each other. That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, you can find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me by email, my address is dan at skypilot.zone. And on your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.